Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R for an hour of science. I have two of my good colleagues in the studio. They're very excited. They're very excited. Dr. Laura, how are you going? Good morning, Dr. Shane. Happy Sunday. Uh, yeah. You look perky. Um, no. Well, <laughs> yeah, I think Shane's just commenting on the fact he's seen me yawn um, exponentially, like increasing over the past few minutes. But yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm happy to chat science. Very good. And Dr. Ailey, good, good to see you. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you going? Is it a day before the start of semester I for you? I know, it is. It excitement. Is. I know, so much excitement. Campus last week was buzzing and I'm really excited about, uh, yeah, getting into it. Monday morning. That's good to hear that there's some buzz on the campus. I, oh, I was... It's back to pre-COVID at well, Monash. It's, yeah. was, it was insane. It was really awesome to see. So many people. I was, was on campus really at Melbourne a few weeks back running a workshop and I, I parked on one side of the campus full as far you know, no, I, yeah. I was only there for 27 years, so I kind of know where things are at. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, parked on one side of the campus, thought I'll walk across the campus, saw two people. Really? It's a city block. Yeah. <laughs> there was no one there. Yeah. I thought, where's everyone hiding? Oh, but maybe and those, two, those two people were groundskeepers. Maybe they'll be back next week, and that means coffee queues. Well, that's what I was yeah, going to say. I mean, the, uh, the week before last, it was nothing at Monash. It was dead. Yeah, and then yeah. last week, it's just like every, the, the ants came rushing back into campus. It yeah. was just everywhere. It was, but it was brilliant. Great, great vibe. Yeah. Well, hopefully, there's some, um, you know, still some safe stuff going on. And I was yeah. in, the, I was in the room that I have to say was not exactly set up ah, for COVID safety. Yeah. So I actually taught with a mask on, which. Yeah. yeah, it's easily doable. Yeah, but um, but between me and, and the audience were these two gigantic HEPA filters. It was like standing behind a seven forty seven, <laughs> and I thought. Um, the, and then there were these air vents at the back of the room, blowing everything at me oh. from the back Ooh. of the room. And I thought this is not really what I wanted. It would but, keep um, you awake, though. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You sort of get your dry eyes. You need some. Yeah. Drops partway through. You would need you know. to be moisturised. Yeah, but, yeah, well moisturised. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, everyone's doing things. Some of the some of the buildings, of course, are hard to retrofit. Yeah, know, and, and these are internal. There's no – was in one of the oldest buildings on campus. So, you know, you can't really just open the windows no. as easy as you used to. Anyway, let's get into some science news. We have three guests coming on the show a little bit later, folks. So it will be um, a pretty jam-packed program. But we're going to start off with some news. Uh, do you want to go first, Ailey? Sure. Wake people up with some good yeah. news. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's good news. <laughs> it's well, no. Look, it's not. It's not bad news, but it's it's actually really exciting news. So this is um a study that was published uh, this week in uh, PLOS Biology, and it's uh, really about how perfume from fungi, those good old fungi, they do weird things oh, yeah. that we just don't even understand yet. Gotta love them. Are mm. uh, kind of helping bark beetles attack. Uh, pine trees and fir trees in oh. in the northern hemisphere. So this is really interesting, but that we can use what they've learned to try and counter it. So you may or may not be aware that uh, in the northern hemisphere in particular, although it has happened here in Australia too, um, bark beetles are absolutely decimating huge forest populations. So basically these things get in, they swarm the trees, they bore away, they eat everything, tree dies they move on to the next tree and forests have been wiped out and of course the extent of these beetles is changing with climate change things getting warmer their their habitat is is able to uh, be expanded so this hasn't been very good for those those lovely you know first spruce pine forests in 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 particularly in the northern hemisphere but what these people found what this group found out of germany was that there was a huge um relationship or correlation initially is what they found between a certain type of fungi and these bark beetles every time that they would find a tree that it was was being or had just been decimated by these bark beetles they found this fungi hmm. they're like oh that's odd we okay we're talking mushrooms or no well like sort of kind of little um not mushroom well, yeah, they're tiny tiny mushrooms okay. yeah yep. yeah but they are um yeah they're not like your classic forest mushrooms right. you know? <laughs> they're quite small um quite you know very fine filament little things right. anyway people kind of thought oh yeah it's just a mushroom doesn't do much that's great but what they found in this study was that they actually measured um basically a 
let's call it a perfume, the chemicals that this fungi were giving off. And then they tested what was happened to the bark beetles when they had this fungi present in the kinds of trees that they were boring into and when they didn't have this fungi Hmm. present. And what they found was that the fungi were giving off additional, um, basically, volatile chemicals that would cause the beetles to go nuts and would attract them like a pheromone. So traditionally they thought that the beetles were attracting themselves. One beetle would go, oh, this is a great tree, everyone come Come here. But now they're thinking that the fungi are working in symbiosis with the bark beetles to actually... Not the trees. Not the trees, yeah, to knock the trees out. Well, that's just so so fungi. So what's... (laughs) uh, It's So what's in it for the fungi? Well... Because that's no the real idea. question, right? That I mean... is the real question, exactly. And that wasn't clear from the studies. But what was clear was that um, this was one of the reasons that the beetles were swarming the trees rather than just one or two beetles attacking, which actually means that if we can knock out the fungi... Fungicide. We can maybe mm. um, reduce the effect or at least the, um, the rate at which these beetles would attack the trees and maybe give the trees a chance. Yeah. This story Sorry. might be so triggering for many of us that are watching The Last of Us, which is where yes, you know, exactly. fungi takes over so, yeah. and causes yeah. a pandemic. It's yeah. very triggering for me right now. I'm in the middle of it. so yeah. I haven't started watching it yet because I don't want to, you know, I, I need to binge it all in one day. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Six episodes are out, so, you know, do binge the six, um, did it last week. And so that's very triggering right now for many listeners. And, you know, so I'm now thinking that the fungi just want to eat the dead tree. So it's like, come kill it for me and I will feast on its remains. Yes, that's probably exactly what it is. But they didn't go into that in the study. But look, the point is that these fungi seem to be important. So if we can understand, you know, how the fungi are letting off their own little pheromones or whatever they're, they're called, um, you know, we can understand maybe how to at least help control the bark beetle, which is a huge environmental problem. So that's a, that's a good thing, I think. So the real test is, do you get the bark beetles where the fungi uh, are located but not near trees? Because it could be that they're actually eating the remains of some of the dead beetles, which is even more disturbing, I think. Because <laughs> they're them to their right? Mm, yeah. Because some fungi do that. Yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Predators. it could be. Yeah. Jeez. Well, I think we asked that question last time. Mushrooms, are they vegan? Yeah, yep. I know. I we did. That. Yep. Full circle. We did. Full circle. Yeah, I, was, I was trying to remember who I learned that from. <laughs> and it was you two. <laughs> <laughs> See how my memory's so good? Yeah. I yeah. mean, this is why. I mean, people don't know this listening to the show, but one of the reasons I do the show is because it's recorded. Mm-hmm. So I don't have to remember it. I can go back and I've got a catalog. Yep. Yep. Because in a given day, I'm remembering 90% of what happened to me. Uh, it's the other way around. See, I forgot that yeah. too. Well, you know, you know something I saw at the University of Queensland. Uh, there is actually a, a compound that they've uh, looked at. A guy up there named Professor Frederick Munier has been looking at this compound out of some of these edible mushrooms, these lion's mane mushrooms that they think they think might actually be boosting nerve growth in the brain. Oh. And I'm like, where do I get these mushrooms? <laughs> oh, no, they're delicious. I've had lion's mane there. Yeah. Awesome. Like, yeah. and do I eat them? Do I have to, do I snore them? Like, what, what's, what's involved in the brain? Do you boil them in water and drink boil it? Boil them in water and oh. drink it? Like, what's involved? But it's, it's interesting. They've actually been looking at what happens with the extract. Uh, they've, they've isolated this particular extract. And it's something that has, these mushroom, mushrooms are being used in certain traditional Asian me- medicines for, you know, a thousand years type thing, but no one really knows why. But it may be that some of these active compounds in the lion's mane mushrooms, you know, help you regenerate certain parts of the brain, which could be very interesting. That's awesome. Early days, early days, preclinical trial stuff. So they've just, you know, done a few experiments here and there, but... Um, but this compound seems to be fairly active and I'm not sure. You always you hear these stories you think, but what is required for this? Do I have to mm. eat a truckload? Because yeah. mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. I once said this story about um, probiotics and, and a certain condition, which I won't mention on air. Um, because I don't want people misconstruing that if you have some, you're cold, you'll suddenly fix yourself. But then uh, it was at a panel at the hospital and when we asked the panellist, how much would you have to consume? She said, oh, yeah, it's about 200 litres a day. That's what we, you know, when we convert the sort of mouse models wow. to humans. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, uh, pass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> so. I mean, the opposite thing happens as well. I remember there's some, some really popular mushrooms in, in France and, you know, there was a, a p- couple of papers that came out years ago that were, you know, oh, actually, these are toxic. You shouldn't eat them. You shouldn't eat them. 
Turns out you'd have to eat about 200 right. kilograms of them every two weeks or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for and them which, to actually I mean, you're you. okay because you've yeah. been worried about that because you've been consuming these on mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah but you're still okay. Yeah, <laughs> 200 okay. kilos. I think that's a bit much. That's a bit much. <laughs> Dr. Laura, what do you got for us? Weird and wonderful. What caught my attention this week? And I kind of feel like they must have been talked about on the show before, naked mole rats and how they preserve <laughs> their fertility. Have we spoken about that before? You know, but any time we it, hear the word naked mole rat, I mean, it's just, it's well, got to be fun. Well, if the word naked's involved, usually it's Chris KP, but he took last yeah. month off. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so they haven't been on for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we were talking about moisturising and just um, so many fun facts about naked mole rats before I get into this. So, okay, one, they look like wrinkly old men, buck yeah. teeth, right? We know what they look like. They look yeah. like little mice. Um, and um, they they naturally produce hyaluronic acid. If you're not using it in your skincare, get on it. Apparently, they're really soft, and they just produce that in abundance naturally. Laura does have pretty good skin. Yeah, I use I use hyaluronic acid. It's produced naturally by these mole rats. Did you know they can run as fast backwards as forwards? Do you know that because you chase them around the house trying to <laughs> rub them against your skin? <laughs> I, I, well, <laughs> I'm getting all sorts of visuals yeah, now. Me mole too. rats. So, mole rat. <laughs> I went, I went down a deep dive on naked mole rat research last night. You know, they can survive without oxygen for 18 minutes. I mean, these mole rats are wild. They are wild little creatures. They can live, the oldest one is called Joe. He's in captivity right now and he's 40, just turned 40. Wow. Yeah, so naked mole rats uh, tend to live into their 30s, right? For a small wow. animal, that's really that's, old. Yes. Yeah. That is wild because a mouse up to the age of four, right? So yep. this is why so many people research in naked mole rat. Oh, it's booming because these naked mole rats, they resist cancer. They don't – they defy gravity – not gravity, but they actually they probably do. <laughs> they do. Now they, I've got levitating mole rats. Yeah, yeah. They, they defy yeah, – Jumping off Laura's defy, face. <laughs> okay, they defy laws of mortality. Oh, there we go. So there, there we go. There we go. I got there. Um, they – so they don't – they're increased uh, – they don't have an increased risk of dying with age. So – with all mammals, you know, the older we are, you know, DNA damage, it's, you know, it's accumulating, you know, our cells stop proliferating, we stop um, DNA repairing as much. And so, you know, with a mouse, for example, every few months, the age of um, the risk of dying doubles. With a naked mole rat, it doesn't. They don't, they seem to be very resistant to diseases, mm. heart diseases, cancer. They don't feel pain the same way. And actually, so their risk of dying is as much um, at the age of like two as it is at 30. And actually, they largely die from fighting. Apparently, they're like super xenophobic. They largely die from conflicts of being cast out of the colony, and um, and death or infected mouth sores from fighting. So oh, that's just okay. Wow. I'm getting off the track. That's a little bit of trivia. But um, the story at hand was about how it's been known for a number of years now that naked mole rats um, are fertile up until the age of 30, and this is the equivalent size related of a 300-year-old woman having a baby. So they maintain their fertility, which is wow. just absolutely remarkable. Um, and so this study kind of asked how they're able to preserve their ovarian reserves. How do really old naked mole rats remain fertile? And so um, there, there were three options. One, they are you know born with a crap load of eggs. Yep. That's number one. Number two, in mammals, we are you know born with a finite you know, finite number of eggs and it's before we're born and then they de decline over time and over fertility. The other is that they don't decline, you know, they, they, they keep producing eggs after they're old. Right. And number three is that their eggs don't die the way ours do. So, you know, we're born with a certain number of eggs. Yes, some get released during ovulation, but most of them just die. And so maybe okay. theirs don't die. And these were the three options. And the researchers found that actually all three options were on the table. Wow. So one, they keep producing eggs after they're born. Two, they're produced with a crap load of eggs. So they were born with like 1.5 million eggs. That's tenfold more than the average mouse. And number three, the eggs just don't seem to die in the same way. So they kind of, you know, they seem to be protected. And so these naked mole rats, they have this sort of hierarchical structure where they live in colonies and only the queen has babies. This queen will have 2,000 babies in a lifetime because she's having babies at the age of 30. Wow. So... Like, you need other naked mole rats who, you know, they're just by acts of dominance, their reproduction is, you know, suppressed. They need to be, you know, taken over the queen at any one time and they need to be ready at any age if they kind of become the new queen to give rise at any time. So in the study, they took three females out of a colony, and so that set off their sort of, I'm going to become queen reproduction. And then they saw their eggs proliferating, which means that their eggs can proliferate postnatally, which totally turns on its head 
what happens in a mammal. This means that you can study it. This actually means that then you can study, you know, how eggs can be proliferating in a mammal after birth, which is freaking awesome. Shane's face is like oh, classic right well, now. I'm just yeah, because I've just got that. How is how is the mole rat not the dominant species on the planet? Yeah, that's what <gasps> I, I know. Gonna... Why aren't they driving cars? Yeah, why aren't they everywhere? Yeah. Thank God they're underground. I mean, <laughs> you know. And did you know actually? Again, in my trivia, kind of you know, you know, sort of yeah. went on Google Bender. There's actually a board game called Mole Rats in Space, <laughs> and. So people like are onto this, you know, uh, the immortal naked mole rat. I, I was thinking Last of Us series two, the mole oh, yes. rat. Yeah. <laughs> the mole rat takes over. The mole, mole rats, rats back, the yeah. mole rat queen and fungi come together. Oh my god! And take over no, the planet. No, That's yeah, wild wow. stuff. That it is. is well, in all seriousness, people want to keep studying these. So, what's the key for everlasting fertility? Yeah. Mm. What's the key for you know preserving your ovarian function, which is really important for you know yeah. anti-cancer and so. You know, people, well, I think if they, they're looking at the, genes yeah, that are on the, in the mole rat. Even with the, the fertility stuff, just one of the three, right? Yeah. yeah. Just one <laughs> of the three would be good. You don't need to crack all three of them. You yeah. just need just one. Just one. Yeah. yeah. Plus wow. that baby soft skin. You know, oh, that's... I know. <laughs> and getting their hyaluronic acid, you know, yeah. preserved in a, you know. You know. No, you're yeah. not milking these things or something, Laura. <laughs> hey, I, I don't know. I'm not, I, it's worth investigating. Are you, what I'm saying. In, are you putting in grant applications that work for mole rat research? Um, the funding actually that, um, you know, funded the study, which was published in Nature Communications, came out of NIH. They're onto really? it. You know, oh. Big funding agencies in America, they're funding this. Because, I mean, you've done yeah. some of this T-cell, T-cell stuff. That's pretty dull, right? Well, I mean, compared to a naked mole rat, seems so. <laughs> yeah? Shifting. Shifting now. Pivoting the research. Yeah. Some research people went going. to you know, yeah. researching COVID. Yeah. I'm on the naked mole rats, yeah. funded by NIH. Yeah. You're going for your second PM's uh, prize there for science, go. yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, you got the first one for some, you know, I don't know, skin T-cell Elevating stuff it up. or something. Right? Immortality but, in yeah. space. Yeah. <laughs> Watch this space, people. It will happen. Uh, we're going to take a break, and uh, when we come back, uh, we'll have a real scientist in the <laughs> studio. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Talking about uh, antibiotics and uh, where that's heading, which, uh, well, this is a good news story, so that'd be cool. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. In the studio with us now, we have Dr. Celine Valeri, who is a senior lecturer in pharmaceutical sciences and the nanobiopharm laboratory head in the School of Health and Biomedical Sciences at RMIT University. Welcome, Celine. Did I miss anything? No, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they get longer and longer yeah. as the years go on, I find. Um, some great stuff there, though. You, you've been working in particular on antibiotics. We, we hear, we've, we've heard a lot about this on the show in the past, but it's usually the bad news stories. And I know, can, can you just run us through where we're at with that? Because there's huge use of antibiotics in agricultural industries and so forth, as well as in hospitals, as well as more domestically. Where, I mean, where do these three things play in terms of the problems we're facing? Oh, you're asking me something I'm not an expert on. So we know there is a big problem with uh, resistance to antibiotics. Mm. And we get feedback from people in hospitals, yep. health workers in hospitals especially, uh, that there are more and more infections that, mm. are, that become resistant. So they have to go to uh, the last resort antibiotics more often and more often. So as a... As a chemist, originally I'm a chemical engineer mm. and, and a doctor in pharmacy, um, our work, our job is to understand this resistance and to create new antibiotics, which is where my work is at. Yeah. And w when you talk about last resort in mm. hospitals, I mean, talk us through what that means. Uh, you know, it, it, are we at that point where a person has a hospital-borne virus of some type that is just resistant to everything? Mm. Is the last resort still something that works or like what? You know, what's the scenario there? So it wouldn't be a virus because <laughs> oh, antibiotics. Sorry, bacteria. Oh my god! You know, thirty years of science radio, and I got that one right. Yeah, yep. it wouldn't be a virus. That's really a message <laughs> to get across. That's very important. Uh, but antibiotics, it's you know the bee. You remember yeah, yeah. bacteria. Yep. yep. Uh, <laughs> And so there's an arsenal of antibiotics that uh, we have. Yep. Um, and so there are antibiotics, for instance, penicillin, that is probably heard of amoxicillin, which is the one uh, many people are prescribed yep. for the most common infections. Uh, but then 
If it doesn't work, there is a second arsenal of antibiotics that are kept there uh, exactly for resistant infections. Mm. And then where well, sometimes there's nothing more. Mm. Uh, so um, one of the um, – after the last resort, some people are starting to use uh, phages, which yeah, in my opinion yeah. in my opinion, is quite a dangerous avenue uh, because we're talking about viruses for bacteria. So yeah. we don't really want to introduce new viruses in the environment. Um, but – the second option is, of course, to have new antibiotics, but also antibiotics that are versatile, that we can quickly uh, modify or quickly adapt, mm. uh, like the bacteria adapts. So if we can, if we can have that systematic adaptation, um, which is what we've tried to do, yep. um, that's... Um, that's a good approach. That's, good That's approach. one of the approaches. So let me just ask you a question with existing antibiotics because, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but these haven't been created by us necessarily, have they, the ones we're using already? They're sort of found in nature and we've optimised them for use. And that's part of the problem. We don't understand them as well as we otherwise could. Is that is that what's happening? So I don't think it's a problem because in, uh, yes, you're right, most of the antibiotics uh, they come from a, from a pragmatic approach that mm. we've noticed, we've observed that nature could make very good antibiotics uh, well, the example of penicillin, penicillin. which comes yep. from fungi uh, and that they worked uh, but um, yeah, it's also this kind of approach that we took, that, that's the biomimetic approach right uh, Look, nature has got more time than us to yeah. <laughs> to work yeah. out things. So that's also a good approach to look at what nature is doing. And what we did, we looked at natural antibiotics uh, in mammals, uh, and we took the minimal parts of those uh, mammal antibiotics and modifying them a little bit to give them stability or uh, versatility for formulation, uh, we actually managed to create new antibiotics. So hmm. I, I think the biomimetic approach is good. good. Go. Yeah. yeah. And how do, you, how do you make it so versatile? Like how do you, you know, as soon as you start to see, presumably as soon as you start to see some resistance, you're going to tweak some aspect exactly. of it. What, why are these new formulations able to do that, whereas the old ones presumably are not? Because well, first we're based on the on on peptides, so mini proteins. So okay. we've got an arsenal of amino acids, and we found a minimal sequence that is active, but we can modify that sequence, adding an amino acid or modifying the shape of the molecule, and then the bacteria won't recognize it. But just when we talk about, I wanted to add something. Just when we talk about. Uh, infections that are resistant. It's not mm. only bacteria. It can be yeast infections and, right. and it can be also fungal infections. I think yep. you've talked about that. <laughs> talking about mushrooms today. Yep. <laughs> yep. We seem to do that all the time lately. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of mushroom yeah. discussions on the show. And yeah. French mushrooms. Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, look, I'm really interested in, in how you, um, when you're making these adjustments, how do you know what adjustments to make? Is it just trial and error and see what happens to the bacteria? Yes. Oh, yeah, we'll adjust this and see if it <laughs> smacks it on the head. Um, and is there any way to streamline or optimise how you oh, do there that? would be. Look, we are definitely, there's definitely a way to streamline and optimise. For the moment, we're really in the discovery space. Mm -hmm. So we basically made, uh, created one minimal uh, active motif uh, that is only four amino acids, so you can mm. see that that's very minimal. But keeping those four amino acids, you see that we can we can graft many things on it, uh, and we tried to to graft a few things or to to add an amino acid in the in the middle to modify the shape of the molecule, and it remained active, uh, including again some resistant fungal strains, <laughs> um, resistant yeah. candida, which mm. is which is um, uh, quite an issue. Now, Celine, I love the name of this because you, you've named this after your PhD student, right? Yes. Tell, tell, yes. So tell us first, what's the PhD student's name? So, well, the PhD student is Priscilla Cardozo. She's probably listening to us. Yep, Hello, no Priscilla. Yep. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we voted as a team in the lab. How should we uh, name this, uh, this new molecule? So the natural molecule it comes from is called indolicidin uh, and so the team chose prusilicidin for I love Priscilla. That. Yeah. Yes. so look I mean it's important to make this work because it may save a lot of lives 
But it's also very important to make this work because this PhD student is going to be stuck with it. <laughs> you know, you, you, you want an antibiotic that works named after yeah. you. I don't want one that's a dud. You know, so you've got you've got to get this working. Yeah. I mean, the pressure, okay. not just for the lives, but for your PhD <laughs> for, the for the name, <laughs> for the legacy. Well, legacy is important. Yeah, in absolutely. Yeah. And in terms of the, I don't normally like asking this question of, of people who are doing this sort of work, but what's the what's the time frame? I mean, this sounds really something that seems very manageable and and in the in the near future not you know normally when I ask these questions people say well you know probably after Harrison Ford's gone you know and, and that was that was Wasn't 20, that years ago. 20 years ago <laughs> <laughs> and, but it's you know it's still happening you, know, you mean can, gone in Star, Star Wars now yeah, yeah, he's yeah, gone yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but it's like they see it so far in the horizon that you think you know I don't even know why we're talking about this now because it's a long way off I mean where, where are we sitting with this where we're sitting with it is well, unfortunately it doesn't depend only on on mm. my yeah, <laughs> on my wish. It it actually depends on the pharmaceutical industry yeah. and to be honest, uh they need to wake up a little bit about new antibiotics yeah. and prioritize uh probably a little bit more. Uh but in terms of if if we get the industry behind us, mm. I would say between five and ten years. I mean, that's super fast, like if you get that mm. support. I mean, five and ten years is fast in, yeah. in terms of medications. You know, that's yeah. that's really fast. If we – yeah, again, there are a lot of ifs. Yeah. So uh, – but, yeah, there yeah. are a lot of ifs. And presumably, are there areas that this won't be applicable to, like areas of, you know, bacterial resistance or so forth where it just won't work um, that you know out of the gate, or is it broadly sort of viable for anything? Uh, So at the moment, what we've characterized, uh, it's really active against uh, fungal, resistant fungal infections. It seems seems to have really a very interesting uh, activity. So we'll probably focus on that. Yep. Uh, and probably look at um, broadening that that family of molecules to uh, to be more active against uh, against other strains. But it works it works against the golden staff, the resistant golden right. staff. Wow! Uh, and we we've tested only a few strains, um, but we think what is promising is the fungal infections because that's also an area. Mm. Where, where we lack actually some uh, antimicrobials. So. Yeah, and, and the one thing we know for sure is this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. So Definitely. There, there should be, you would hope, some urgency in you know coming out with a preemptive strike as opposed to you know our standard repair care kind of model of the system, which is Absolutely. Yeah, not so great. All right, well, Celine, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today. Thanks we for look having me. forward to hearing about these um, new antibiotics coming out, and congratulations to you and your PhD student. I think it's fabulous that the lab named um, named it after her. So, you know, you've, you've got to get it going. For, yeah, okay. You know, you know, she, she could be a full professor by the time it comes out, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a short break for some music, and when we come back, uh, we'll be speaking with our second guest today, uh, talking about a new exhibit that museums Victoria uh, building. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 RRR. Now, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gago. That was Everything You Do by Vanessa Wurm. In the studio with us now is Kate Phillips. Kate is a senior curator of exhibitions at Museums Victoria, the Research Institute. Welcome back. It's been a long time. It has been a while. Are we talking a decade, talking five years? Uh, Maybe 10, yeah. 10 years, jeez. <laughs> See, I, I was saying uh, to our third guest, who will be in briefly uh, later, um, I do that calculation based on how many guests I've interviewed, not years. And so I think that's, I don't know, 1,500. <laughs> so, not good. It anyway, yes. Now, you're at the museum. Do you just stand there looking at the new, t- um, the new Triceratops exhibit every, all day, every day? Every now and again, yeah. It's definitely worth a visit. I uh, haven't seen it yet. How I was going to say how big it is. Is it, is it the size of, <laughs> size of a triceratops? It must look this, you know, it's half the size of a bus, right? It's very impressive, yeah. yeah. Wow. And, um, and it's all in the room, The what used to be the taxidermy the room. The wild that, exhibition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By itself. It is. Wow. Yeah. It's um, elevated and it's just given beautiful lighting, which really brings out the detail of the actual fossil, mm. which is an extraordinary fossil because it captures, you know, tiny little details like, the, you know, the veins and the, wow. you know, yeah. it's, it's uh, 
quite extraordinary. And, and just clarify something for me, because I've always been, you know, I just don't trust people. So, like, I don't trust people being around expensive things. But it's the actual fossil, right? It is it's the not a fossil. plastic mold or anything. No, no, it's, it's a real fossil. It's the real fossil. Mm. So it's what seventy million years old. Something. Give uh, or take. No, uh, seventy. Um, I actually don't know. But it's old. It's old, yes, definitely. <laughs> dinosaur. Yeah, so, definitely more yeah, than 65 yeah. million years yeah, old. But that's, but that's wild, isn't it? That, um, yes, to have seemingly... lasted that yeah, long yeah. and still be in such good nick. Yeah, and it's one, of the, one it... of the most complete in the world, yes, my understanding. Yes, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, sorry, just uh, geeking out there a little bit about the uh, fossil because I haven't seen it yet and I've been talking well, about it. Well, you'll have so. to come along. Yeah, I've got to come it's very special. Now, you're opening a new gallery, essentially, at the Melbourne Museum. I'm not sure where this gallery is put. It seemed um, pretty it, full last time I yes, looked. Yes, uh, it's actually a new exhibition within yep. our Science and Life Gallery. Okay. So just next to the Dinosaur Walk, yep. you'll, you'll be turning uh, left okay. and you'll see this lovely new exhibition. And what does the new exhibition entail? The new exhibition is a showcase of our research uh, current research in uh, sciences at Museums of Victoria. A lot of people don't realise that mm. uh, that research actually goes on at the museum, um, and so it's an opportunity to um, showcase some of the range of things that we do. Uh, this this is one of the things that I suppose we, we have talked about this over the years because I'm I'm a bit of a fan of this. But you know, I, I think of the museum as it's the it's the iceberg, right? I mean, what people see is that little bit at the top, but the the caverns of storage of you know, extensive collections. Yeah, it's extensive, right? I mean, how, how much does the public see? Like, I don't know if you know the percentage off head, but you know, about how much does the public see? Uh, well, we have fifteen million items, fifteen million objects, yep. and on display at any one time there would be in the hundreds. So it's only wow. a very small um, proportion, um, and that's you know understandable in that a lot of our items are purely for. Research, yep. um, so that they're not really designed to be on display. But in this gallery, we've had the opportunity to pick out some of those slightly more unusual objects and put them on display. Do you do that, like as a curator? You, yes. you go, you, you're walking through the caverns. You know, I got, I got that scene from <laughs> Indiana Jones' first film with all the boxes, you know, in the big uh, in the big hall, yes. and you're wandering through, and you go, that one. How does that well, work? <laughs> no, I work very much closely with my colleagues who are the curators of their particular uh, collections and the collection managers. Yep. And they will say, look, this is an area which we're actively researching. Yep. Um, and this is why it's significant. Um, and so that, that that's how the selection process would go. And they'd, you know, they'd say, here are a range of things that you know might you could choose from. And then we work together to decide Yes, this one will fit in the showcase. This yep. one's more support, you know, more um, significant, etc. Yeah, wow. So, what kind of things do you research? I mean, I know some of my colleagues look at rocks and fun gemstones and things like that that you might have in the collections. But um, yeah, what what kind of stuff is there? Well, are we going to see stuff that we've never seen before? Yes, um, one example would be our thylacine collection. So this is Tasmanian tigers, obviously the extinct. Um, marsupial that uh, lived in uh, Tasmania and previously uh, also on the mainland. Um, but we have quite a large collection of skins, skeletons, um, preserved joeys, um, skulls, footprints. Um, so uh, we've put those on display and we're talking about how museum collections can preserve things like the genetic information mm. of extinct species or um, can even be involved in trying to preserve and safeguard genetic diversity for species which are uh, in danger at the moment. Because that, that's wild because I remember we, we had one of the researchers working on the return of the thylacine and I have a vague recollection of some of them being stored in formaldehyde and some in alcohol and one of the two preserved the DNA. Yes, the alcohol um, preserves the DNA. Right, and so, it was kind of by accident that... Uh, yeah. yeah, who could have imagined, who could, who could have yeah. even predicted that we'd be able to read the genome from uh, a specimen... In a jar. Uh, in a jar. So 100 years 100 ago, years old. If, you yep. were, if you were thinking about preserving something, you just would not have the imagination <laughs> to know that it would be used in yeah, that way. Yeah, 100 years from now... They're going to be looking for something that I don't know exists. Mm. So I'm going to use alcohol instead of uh, formaldehyde uh, on this particular occasion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so we've got that specimen on display. Wow. And it's like, uh, you know, it's quite modest. It's this little jar with the little, you know, um, thylacine joey in it, preserved in alcohol. It's a little bit, you know, kind of like a 
um, it's lost some of its colour, etc. So to look at, it's not very impressive. But when you think about it, it is quite amazing that yeah. an extinct species, we can actually know it's gen- it's. You know, it's genetic code. Yeah, you kind of need a picture of Jeff Goldblum next to it, holding it like, you know, like the amber insect from Jurassic Park, because that's essentially what it will one day presumably be. That one set specimen will be the source yeah, of DNA potentially mm. to bring that marsupial back in some form if that yes. happens. If that happens. A lot of ifs, yeah. but you know. Yeah, a lot of ifs. Yeah. And Kate, I'm trying to picture this. Where is the Where are all these specimens stored and where does the research take place? Is it behind closed doors in the museum? Yes. So we have um, specially controlled collections areas that are temperature controlled. I was going to say, is humidity, it cold? <laughs> humidity controlled. You know, I think it's just cool. It's not, you know, no extremes. Um, and also very carefully controlled in terms of uh, pests and, uh, you know, anything that might destroy the specimens, light, light controlled. Mm. Um, and so, yes, that's where our researchers go to um, pull out the specimens if they need to work on them. Then they might, you know, take them into the laboratories if they need to do something. But, um, well, yeah, it's the temperature contr- so controlled. I, uh, I think stores. the interest from Laura there is because she's been rubbing mole rats on her skin <laughs> and she wants this controlled environment to stop herself from decaying. <laughs> Well, I think I've watched too many movies where you break into the specimen area to, you know, try and right. steal something magical with some, like, magical powers. And can I ask one more thing? Because I'm just really interested. Um, I need to know how you got how you got the um, the dinosaur skeleton. Like, do you, do you uh, fossil, do you, do you bid for that as a curator? Like, of course, we've got, we'd have the monopoly on the Tasmanian tiger, like, being Australian. But mm. where did the dinosaur come from? Uh, it came from overseas, from um, the US. Uh, and... Uh, yes, there would be quite a lot a bidding of bidding war. There'd be a, a lot of interest from large museums, mm. um, and it's be quite a lot of negotiation mm-hmm. to get it, and quite a lot of money as well. But um, yeah, it's something as rare and complete as that does uh, command yep. a particular um, value, really. I have a great image of. We'll give you this drop bear. <laughs> Skeleton, <laughs> if you give us that uh, dinosaur, <laughs> it's very rare. It's very rare, mm. Ellie. Well, I was going to ask about, you know, obviously you've got a lot of stuff down there. And I have heard of um, things being lost in... Time. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Mm. What's have, have you ever rediscovered something like, I don't know, your, your thylacine joey in a jar or something like that, where you had lost it and then this is like, you know, research gold that anybody's ever found again 60 years later crammed in the back of a cupboard not labelled? I think some of those those things do happen. Um, But these days we've got everything barcoded and it's very um, systematic, Mm. Um, so it's less likely to happen. Mm. But I think possibly... Um, the sort of situation where it might happen is where you've got a sort of larger collection of things like, say, a collection of uh, insects, um, which is multiple, multiple specimens, and then maybe you find one that's particularly significant. Mm. So that might be sort of just hiding there amongst a, a mm. big group. Um, yeah, I can't think of any particular example mm. where some, you know, some treasure was found, <laughs> it's, it's but probably, I'm sure that happened. Yeah, I mean, it's probably more the classification of, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, they may have been classified 100 years ago in a certain way. And now we have another look, you know, and you've got teams of researchers there looking at them again and saying, hang on. This maybe... is really significant. Yes. Yeah. In fact, actually, one of those ones is going to be on display. Wow. Yeah. We've got um, the Gould's mouse, which is a native mouse, um, and it was thought to be completely extinct. Um, but when, because we had this um, specimen, this mm. from the 1850s, I think, um, then we were able to look at the genetics of this specimen and find out that it was actually still alive on an offshore island in WA. Wow. So yeah. that's where uh, uh, the um, museum specimen suddenly gains more um, importance. Um, so this was a species mm. that was once really widespread um, and it had um, shrunk down. And um, But we actually realised that it's actually still around on this Offshore island. Yeah. Oh, it's wild Amazing. stuff. Look, I think a lot of people need to have a look at what's going on there at the museum because there is a lot of research going on, and a lot of researchers from outside the museum also come in and utilise the collections as well. So it's a resource for you know many of our researchers. My understanding is, geez, I hope I didn't get this wrong. <laughs> it, once you've paid your general admission, it is free to that's, see that's this, great. which is great. Yes, yes. Um, and when does it open? It opens on the 11th of March. Not far away at all.
Excellent. Well, Kate Phillips, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us to, today about this new opening at the museum. And I'm going to try and get along and see that and the, and the giant dinosaur. Do, um, some do come along. Yep. I think you'll really enjoy it. Excellent. Folks, we're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about some other really old specimens in just a few moments. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gago. We've got our third guest in the studio now, Professor Andy Herries. He's the head of the Australian Archaeomagnetism Laboratory and, I'm going to get this wrong, Drymelin Paleoanthropology Field School Department, Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. How did I go, Andy? Yeah, you did pretty well. I did pretty well. That's a polite way of saying I messed it up. <laughs> Very good. Um, now, let's just talk about your field areas first, because you're a paleoanthropologist and a geochronologist. Let's start with the second one. What's a geochronologist focus on? So a geochronologist basically works out how old things are. Right. So when I was at university, I nearly went to do a master's in becoming a sort of hominid skull measurer and understanding human evolution by looking at the differences in the skulls anatomically. Hmm. But I ended up going to Africa and being convinced that I'd been a caver since I was 17 and that I should be more <laughs> interested in rocks and geology and working out how old those fossils are. So Rather than looking at how fossils fit together anatomically, mm. I do it by saying this one's 3 million, this one's 2 million, and I do it that way. I create the sort of chronological background for all those fossils to sort of sit together on. Do you need a certain set of circumstances to be able to do that, or, uh, you know, in terms of the rock, the locations and so forth, where you find these specimens? I mean, 100%. Almost everything we know about our earliest origins come from two main points in Africa. They mm. come from the Rift Valley, stretching from Kenya down to Tanzania. Tanzania, and then in a series of caves in South Africa, which is where I mostly work, yep. um, the entire rest of Africa we know absolutely nothing about. So we're looking through these little pinholes into the past, really. And what's unique about those locations in terms of just the, the sort of rocks? and? Yeah, I mean, it's the preservation of fossils themselves. There are probably fossils all over other areas, but we need sort of access to them. We often find them, like, in the bottom of mines because we mm. need to be able to get down to that old stratigraphy. In the Rift Valley, it's being pulled apart and stuff fills and we get the fossils preserving. And caves, obviously, are like natural museums. They sort of preserve things very, very well. Yeah. Now, let's talk about time frames. Uh, I think most people know about, you know, carbon dating. How far back can you go of carbon dating? Carbon dating will only take you back about 50,000 years. Mm. So um, you can get back to some a few pre-human species with that, but um, pretty, limited. pretty limited, yeah. And it depends on where you are in the world, what type of deposit you're in, as to what methods you can use. Yep. And do you then use, I know there's other ones around uranium and, and other dating mechanisms. What's the, for the really old stuff? Yeah, so, I mean, in Eastern Africa, it's mostly um, potassium argon or argon-argon dating, which dates the volcanic sequence. Okay. In South Africa, we don't have that. We've got the caves, so we date stalagmites a lot, so using uranium series, which is uranium thorium, uranium lead dating. Yep. Um, and we can use a thing called electron spin resonance dating, which dates teeth, uh, nice. but it's not. it tends to have quite big errors to it. It's also destructive of teeth, and people don't like you cutting up and destroying their hominid fossils. So uh, we're only allowed to do that on certain things. Yeah. And so how far back does does that get you, all those techniques sort of combined? So I've got a PhD student at the the moment, actually, who's trying to work at, you know, how old can we go with electron spin resonance dating? She's managed to get stuff back about 3 million years. But you need specific environment. You need a background. Basically, ESR works a little bit like radiation damage. The amount of radiation you have in the background um you want it to be really really low if it's really low you can go back a very long period of time in south africa we're lucky that we have quite low background radiation levels so we can go back a long way interesting i mean in terms of, of sampling these things too how many how many actually exist that you can look at i mean is it is it that you're looking at one or two skulls or some bone fragments here or there or is it um, that it's quite rich through South Africa and the Rift Valley and, and, and there's lots of different speci- um, specimens to work on? It depends on the time period, ultimately. Mm. I mean, we always say, I mean, I think the sort of common thing we say is that you could stick all the human fossils in the back of a ute <laughs> and uh, that would be it. There are more people studying the fossils than there are actual fossils mm. in the world. But it depends on the time period, ultimately. So somewhere like Sturkfontein in South Africa has like 500 fossils from there. Um, we've got lots for certain periods. In actual fact, when I teach human evolution, I sort of teach it a little bit like, well, here's a million years, we've got a lot of fossils and we know a lot about. 
And then there's a period where we know very little about, and it's like muddle in the middle one, and then you've got the next section, and muddle the next muddle in the middle. So there's certain periods of time that we've got lots of fossils, others that we don't, and that you know variably depends on the geology. But it also depends on whether it comes from a time period or an area of the world that we can date stuff. If we're looking at the last 50,000 years, obviously our understanding of human evolution is revolutionised by other things like ancient DNA. But you can't do that, you know, right back in time. You get proteomics now, which is beginning to push back, looking at proteins. And I mean, we're trying that on our two million-year-old site in South Africa, but nobody's ever done it back that far before. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, the, the one part I haven't really thought about a lot is just how, as you said just then, how limited the locations you can do this are in. So even if mm. you did find them in other locations around the world, you may not actually be able to date them. And we get very excited. I mean, the first it took me till 2012 to pull out my first sort of early oh, yeah. human fossil, and it was a tooth, and I was very excited <laughs> by it. And then about three years later, a um, second-year um, student uh, basically pulled out the world's oldest Homo erectus from the site, yeah. sort of a partial cranium. And then 2018, we had a student that came from Canada at the Drimmel and Field School, and they pulled out the most complete fossil ever of Paranthropus robustus, which is this side branch this, in this our evolution. Do you still have the tooth, like, in a case on your desk, just to remind them who's boss? <laughs> I have pictures of it. <laughs> so, um, Shane's going to cringe when I ask you the questions that I want to ask you, because it sounds like the most incredible job in the world, that you could just wander around and, like, pull out a tooth. If you were to just be, like, transplanted into an area where there was some fossils, could you, with your, like, back Ground, walk around and just generally predict 50,000, 1 million? <laughs> Could you do it? Um, not really, no. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, obviously, having an understanding of geology is an important thing to sort of understand where you might find fossils. An example is in South Africa, the orange, the sort of or- the Vaal River. So if you're north of the Vaal River, um, you've got metamorphic rocks, you get lots of quartz being formed, you find no fossils. If you're south of the Vaal River, you've got a different geology, the Karoo geology, you find lots of fossils. And so knowing those sorts of things helps you in that first sorts of instance. Yeah. Um, but a lot of these things is a lot of hard work by people, you know, trying to correlate sections together. And, you know, this volcanic eruption level here is the same as this one. And it's, yeah, it's, it's wild stuff. Now, in, in your most recent paper, you've been looking at a particular stone tool or a piece of, you know, ancient technology, essentially. Yeah. It's around 2.9 million years old. How do you know it was a tool? So... We we found the oldest evidence of what is known as Alderwan technology. So mm-hmm. this is named after Alderwai Gorge in Tanzania, and they found the first of these tools in the 1950s. Now, um, it's, a, it's a relatively simplistic type of stone tool technology, but um, you basically have uh, what are called hammer stones, which are basically just rocks used to hit other, th- yep. other rocks with. Um, you get what are known as cores and flakes. So when you hit one rock against the other... If the rock is of a particular type of rock, you get this, uh, you'll get a certain fracture mechanism and you mm-hmm. get these very nice sharp edges. And so they were my, mainly just creating these little sharp flakes and they just wanted the cutting edges to sort yep. of be able to utilise them. But then what they also did is that the, the pieces, the, what we call the cores that they took off, they'd often shape them in a particular way. You get these things called choppers and they'd use them to then break open the bone to get to the marrow. Because when we're talking about humans interacting with animals and eating animals they're not hunting them at this time period right you know we are getting the the remnants of other what other things have eaten so these are carcasses yeah they're carcasses and so by the time that our ancestors get to them there's probably not a lot of meat left on them um so they're going for you know they're going for the marrow in there so you know Obviously, people go out and pay lots of money in Melbourne these days for a nice bit of marrow. But uh, that's why our ancestors were eating, because they didn't have a lot of the meat on there. As time goes by, we can scare those other animals off and we can get access earlier. We can get more meat. But it's not until Mm. a lot, lot later we've got evidence of actual hunting. They may have also, you know, sometimes, you know, found dead animals on the landscape and they would have utilised that sort of stuff. Now, uh, also in, in what you sent through to me was the idea that Paranthropus may have hunted hippos. Now, hippo, hippos are mean things. <laughs> they're, they're deadly, right? Yeah, I mean, they're the How most... How do you hunt a hippo? They're the most dead... Well, <laughs> a, Asking the big questions. I, I don't know if I said hunting. Hopefully I didn't, otherwise I misspoke. But they, they weren't hunting the hippos, that's for sure. Um, but they were butchering the hippos. Right. So 
How the hippos uh, they actually got hold of them is still a little bit of a, a little bit of a question. There are some big other ca- carnivores at the site. There's right. a thing called Megantarian, which is a saber-toothed cat. Um, but we don't have evidence of tooth marks on the bones. We do have evidence of cut marks from stone tools. So we right. know humans were eating it. So whether they were, and there was three hippos at the site, two of which have got cut marks on. Hmm. Um, they may. This is sort of on the side of Lake Victoria, um, and so they, they may have accessed the carcass. They may have died or something like that. But yeah, hippos are. Pretty aggressive. Yeah. Um, I once in my youth sort of uh, kayaked down the Zambezi <laughs> right. um, sort of to uh, – and for, for five days sort of camping on islands and we came across a lot of hippos and once I did have to abandon boat onto shore because right. one just came straight up in front of me. Wow. Absolutely scary as. Yeah, yeah, because so. they're, they're, they're big animals. They're they are very big. Very big animals. You just yeah. don't want to get between them and deep water. Right. Mm, bad yeah, idea. Like bad so. idea. Finally, how did you just quickly? How did you date this these stone tools around two point nine million years? Because that's that's an incredibly long time period. It is, yeah. And um, so actually, yeah, it, it was used a method that's a little bit more unusual for East Africa. So um, some colleagues used a method called um, uranium thorium helium dating. So when uranium and thorium decay because they're radioactive, and we use that for uranium thorium dating yep. of stalagmites, um, it creates helium. And so you can measure the helium, you can measure the uranium and thorium, and you can get a uh, age estimate based right. on the r- relationship of the two. But there was quite large errors on that. So it was like 2.9 million plus or minus about 400,000. So what we try to do as geochronologists is we try to use lots of different methods, correlate them together, and hopefully they say the same thing. Yep. So yep. I used a method called paleomagnetism that looks at how the magnetic field of the Earth changes through time. Certain time periods, around about 3 million years and about 2.6 million years, the magnetic field reverses 180 mm-hmm. degrees. Yep. So we're able to identify those points in the sequence, compare that to the uranium thorium helium dating, and together work out that it was around about 2.9 million happened just after one of those reversals. Amazing. Wild stuff. I mean, it's just incredible that we can pull back that time range from so long ago, but good stuff. Professor Andy Hughes, thanks so much for uh, coming in today and talking about this uh, great work going on out there at uh, La Trobe Uni. It was a pleasure. Folks, we're almost out of time, so I need to say goodbye to my colleagues before we hand over to the great team from Eat It. Dr. Laura, you got a big Sunday planned? <laughs> With mole rats. <laughs> with mole rats. I don't know where Sorry, to go naked, with that. No, rats, no, right? it's, it's grant writing Sunday, Shane. You know, grant writing Sci- Sunday. scientist life. Yeah. See, Saturday was grant reading Sunday for me, <laughs> where I was reading other people's grants to help them out. But uh, I'm glad I'm into. You got Sunday. some time free. Uh, uh, no. Let's do this. Free. All right. Free is a word I don't always <laughs> use when I'm reading other people's grants. But you know, you're a friend, so you know, maybe we can sort something out. You know, cook a couple of meals and work out a deal. <laughs> anyway, uh, Dr. Ellie, great having you in as well. Thanks, Dr. Thanks so Shane. Great to be here. Folks, uh, we are going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. Once again, we'll be back again next week. We have a huge march coming up for you with some very, very special things which we'll be announcing uh, over the coming weeks. But until then, remember science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. Have a great Sunday. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.